guy. Ever wonder what it's like to face a 350-pound lineman who wants to smash you into the ground? I know what that feels like. Scott Mitchell here, and I want to tell you about my podcast, Helmets Off, where I talk about the pressures of being an NFL quarterback and some of the other pressures pro athletes face when the helmet is off. It's a podcast, and you can get it free on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and at kslsports.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. This is Michael Gervais. There's nobody on the world stage of athletics or um, business that doesn't work hard. We do not talk about working hard. That's that's a given. This idea that you got to hustle and grind. Everybody is. <laughs> so we don't talk about that. What we're actually talking about behind the curtain is how to recover better. How to, how to live more efficiently. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really... Uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let them become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper. But uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. Michael, thanks for making time. Tell us uh, tell us a bit about yourself. <laughs> it's quite the way to start, but so just uh, thanks for having me on. And looking forward to sharing some ideas that I've been paying attention to for a long time and trying to sort out how the mind works and the mind works under duress and pressure. And by trade and training, I'm a sports psychologist licensed in California with a specialization in um, high stakes environments. And so uh, that's squarely where I've spent most of my efforts in the last 20 so years being able to understand how or better understand, not completely understand by any means, but better understand how humans, exceptional people that are invested in becoming their very best, how their mind works in hostile and challenging environments and how they can front load the training to be able to be more eloquent when the stakes get higher for them. Yeah. And so can you give us just the the five second version, the, you know, did this for school, eventually ending at the PhD, went on to Red Bull, you're the Seattle Seahawks, kind of that background. Oh, sure. Yeah. So the mechanical part is, um, well, I'll start it with a story, actually, is that when I was in high school, I was I, I was not interested in school, and that's not a new story for many people. And I was much more interested in surfing. And I grew up in Southern California, and that was a sport that really grabbed my attention. 
And there was, there's two types of surfing. There's free surfing and competitive surfing. And the two worlds rarely cross over. Free surfing is like being hardcore and, you know, being one with the ocean, if you will, and, and just doing it for the love, not for any sort of recognition or attention. Matter of fact, it wasn't cool to get any attention for the things that you're doing. And on the competitive side, it was completely different. You know, there's judges and there's uh, people on the beach that are watching and everything's scored. And so it is for flash and flare and whatever. And those two worlds don't really cross over. And I wanted to compete. I was the culture of the group that I was in was more of the free surfing, but I wanted to compete. But what happened for me when I was competing, and I'm talking about like when I was in high school, 14, 15, 16 years old in that range, is I was such an anxious mess that all the things that I knew I could do in the ocean on a regular basis, on the days of competition, I felt like I couldn't even feel my feet. Like my head and my body was completely disconnected from the ocean and my surfboard. And I don't think that coming to find out, you know, now looking back in 20 years, that's not that uncommon for people, whether it's public speaking or it's confronting someone in a public place that, you know, you, you need to have some poise about yourself. It's standing up for yourself. It's making that pitch in the boardroom, you know, for in front of VCs. It's like that is not that uncommon that people become unhinged and unglued. But for me, when I was 15 years old, it was so strikingly painful that I basically went on this mini mission to figure out what the heck is wrong with the way I think. <laughs> and so that started me down this path. Um, undergraduate degree in psychology, master's degree in kinesiology, which is the study of muscles and motion. But there wasn't enough there for me. And I went back and got a PhD in psychology with a specialization in sport and performance, licensed as a psychologist, and then um, figured out that I really still had no real knowledge, um, applied knowledge, I should say, of how the mind works. And then so I just began to cut myself in high stakes environments, um, and mixed martial arts, uh, some small military work, and then um, a bunch of backcountry stuff with Red Bull and the action sports world, where the stakes are, are um, noticeably um, dangerous. And so, and currently I'm spending time up at the Seattle Seahawks as part of their program with head coach Seattle Seahawks, I'm sorry, head coach Pete Carroll, and um, been up there for about six years now. And, and so for people who don't understand this world as well, what do the Seahawks hope that you're bringing to the players and to the organization? Well, it's like if you were to pull back the curtain and be in the environments of world-class athletes, there, I haven't met a coach in the two decades I've been trying to understand better how the mind works and trying to understand how to train the mind, front-loading the training, as we call it, so that when we're about to be tested or the stakes are high, that we can be poised and adjust and capture the opportunity in front of us. And I haven't met an athlete or coach that doesn't nod their head up and down when asked the question like, hey, how, how important is the mental part of the game? And they just nod like, yeah. <laughs> and so that's the conversation and that's the science uh, that I'm anchored to is how do you use psychology to be able to enhance the output and the experience in your life? And as humans, there are only three things that we can train. And, that, and training means getting better at, right? You can train your body, you can train your craft, and you can train your mind. And those are the three areas. So, um, you know, what we've come to learn from a science perspective is that thoughts precede actions. 
And so if we want to move up the chain of impact for whatever we're doing, whether it's being a parent or being a musician or an entrepreneur, manager, director, a president, is that, um, or an athlete, it helps to have incredibly robust and productive ways of thinking. And then the mental skills to be able to adjust when things are not going the way that you plan them to go. So that that's, I hope that can bring a little bit of color into this invisible world of the mind. Yeah. So I'm interested in this. Um, when you talk about training craft, you know, I get the physical training, I get the mental, the mental training. When you talk about training for craft, what's an example or, or how is that separate? separate in your mind from the other two areas. Okay. So let's do, I'm stuttering because there's like so many easy examples um, to stitch together here, but let's do football for just an example, or actually, you know what, let's do like guitar is that um, I need to train my posture. And so I need to have stamina and I need to have strength in my hips. And like, there's a body thing that you actually train. That's it's related to your craft, but it's separate. And then I need to train um, technically, I need to know the chords and the notes and the rhythms. I need to know how to um, move between chords and how to hit particular notes. And so that's all the craft stuff and how to stitch that together in an artistic way. And then the mind is how to be calm and focused, how to trust yourself, how to be able to um, generate a sense of optimism when things aren't going well. So those are the basic uh, differences. And then if you use that in sport, it's much easier to think about you train your body to be strong and nimble and fast and flexible and powerful and then you train your craft like let's say football to keep your elbows in when you're going to tackle or to keep your head up when you're going to tackle or to know how to have that the right footwork to be able to stay on top if you're a defender and those are all very technical things that involve the body but they're very technical and that's the craft part and then the mind is again how to be calm, confident, focused, you know, and um, uh, be grounded in, in high, high stakes environments. Yeah. So taking these concepts and, and thinking maybe of more of a business environment or, or government agency, you know, traditional work environments, can you talk about this compete to create? Uh, yeah. So it was the Seattle, thank you for asking. The Seattle Seahawks have had an incredible successful run. And the culture begins and basically ends with head coach Pete Carroll. And it be, the reason I say it begins and ends is because it, it begins with his ideas of the culture that he wants to create and stimulate for people. And then the culture is co-created by everybody else in the organization. So what we've learned is that there's when you're working with people that want to be great and you're selected and your parts of communities where people really want to do exceptional things. And you think of a young startup or you think of a sports franchise or you think of a management team that really is committed to a mission for the organization is that there's two parts that amplify and accelerate that uh, success arc. And the first is the culture. So creating a culture where people um, can build relationships to do difficult things together. That's the first part of the, the equation. And the second part is investing in the mental skills that allow people to not get so frustrated so quickly, to not be so stressed so easily, to recover in a, in a significant way so that they can do the difficult things required to go the distance. And 
so Coach Carol and I, it was the first year going into our first Super Bowl. And I mean, the organization was just buzzing. And he had the culture just switched on in just the right way. Uh, he and the GM worked so closely together. The culture was just right. The athletes were nodding their head up and down like this is the way it's supposed to feel. And the mental skills that were being employed and trained were um, were working, right? And so he, he grabs me in the hallway one day and he says, hey, can you feel it? And I nodded up and down my head like, yeah, this it's amazing to be up here. And he says, do you think anyone would be interested outside of sport of what we're doing? And I paused and he, he, without skipping a beat, said, let's write it down. And so I said, okay, <laughs> I'm not even sure what I'm writing down. But he says, let's write down what you and I have been doing, what's been important to him, what's been important to me, and what the two of us have done together, and see if we could capture something. So we circled back in a couple days, and I had a long list of things that I've been paying attention to and training on the mental side. And he wrote down all the principles that were important to him over his 40 years of coaching and um, to create great cultures. And then we linked that together and created a curriculum. And then that curriculum was introduced to um, Satya Nadella over at Microsoft, the CEO of Microsoft, and Allison Watson, which is one of uh, the marketing experts there. And it was like all of a sudden um, there was just this incredible pull to want more. And what they wanted was they wanted to understand how to help people in their organization to help them be their very best. And one of the ways to do that is to show them how to condition their mind to be strong, to be nimble, to be flexible, to be resilient, to stay the course and to know how to recover properly in this insta-fast-paced digital world that we're becoming uh, familiar with. But our ancient brains have not figured out how to live in the modern time. And so we're helping people bridge that gap. So... Um... Let's talk about one of these as an example for a minute. Like, um, you know, modern guy I really like these days is Ryan Holiday and his stuff on stoicism. Or, you know, I, I really like Viktor Frankl's stuff on, you know, the Nazis in prison camp could take away everything but my choice of how to react to how, having them take everything away from me, right? Viktor Frankl so, is a legend and Ryan Holiday is on it. <laughs> so uh, give, give us an example of something... For instance, that resilience that, you know, dealing with overwhelmed that, you know, most most leaders today, at least at our consulting firm, Mylan, you know, most of these CEOs we advise have way too many to do's compared to hours in a day. And then they have emergencies come up. Right. Mm -hmm. OK, so here's the basic principles. And I, when I share these with you, I, I'm a bit nauseated by this idea. And I don't you, you haven't asked this question, so not nauseated by by your approach, but this idea that you can hack anything and that anything of significance and meaning. And that if I just had the one tactic, I'd be a better performer. It mm. just doesn't work that way. You know, mm -hmm. it's skills and tactics and philosophies are part of the tapestry of you becoming you. And it's the knitting of those skills and strategies and principles that are, and tactics that are, important. It's not one alone that's going to change the world. So the way we think about it is we've got a set of principles that we operate from. And then there's there's the underlying awareness that in our, our ancient brain in modern times, there's a problem between that. 
And there's a fundamental problem with or challenge for all of us. It's not a problem. It's a challenge for all of us that we are operating based from our parents and our grandparents that we need to do more to be more. And that the doing is, is exhausting. And I know that most people, let me say this better, most people that I know are tired. They're fatigued. They're exhausted. And Viktor Frankl was on it about you know what happens to people um, as soon as real fatigue sticks, takes over is they start to lose purpose and strength. And so, and he watched people die in the concentration camps right next to him because they were so fatigued that an SS trooper would take away their cigarette and the next hour, the next day, they would die because they just took away their cigarette. They lost hope. And so what's happening for most many people in the modern day workforce is we're working ridiculously hard to do more so that we can be more and we're not recovering properly. And we need to flip that model on its head and understand how to be more, be more present, be more grounded, be more authentic, be more here now and let the doing flow from there. So our entire program is orientated on helping people become their very best by being themselves. So it starts with knowing one's personal philosophy. Viktor Frankl was very clear about the importance of meaning and purpose in one's life and the process to help people do that. And the process is very important, not just the fact that you need to figure out your purpose. Well, that's good. But what is the scientific and applied ways to help people find their purpose? Okay, so, so it starts with a personal philosophy and it bookends with, um, with what is your vision and where you want to go and who you want to become. Getting really clear with both of those is very important. Having a, um, a conditioning your mind on how you see the future is very important. Not the vision of what's possible, but the way that you interpret small pieces of information. And the lenses that we see the future with, if we follow good science, is either optimistic or pessimistic. Those are the two explanatory models. Either I have a fundamental belief that the future is going to work out, or I need to protect myself because I don't think the future is going to work out. And what we found in rugged and hostile environments is that optimism, while it might sound soft, it might sound a bit willy-nilly or not strong. And what we found, though, is that optimism is at the center of mental toughness. So mental toughness is staying in the fight, staying in the grind, staying in it when you're not getting the information that you want to be getting, when you're receiving information that is contrary to what you had hoped for. That requires mental toughness. And on, what's underneath of that is optimism, a fundamental belief that the future is going to work out. So just keep your ass going. Stay in it. I mean, there's a classic example of the Seattle Seahawks. We were down 31 points in a, in, a, in a championship opportunity. And 31 points. There's never been a, there's never been a, a swing from a team that's been down 31 points to win a game. So we went into halftime. And I, as we're walking back into the hallway, or as we're in the hallway walking back to the locker room, um, an athlete leaned over to me as he's kind of uh, jogging past me, and he says, he says, hey, Gervais, this is going to be the greatest comeback in history. Watch. And so that thought is optimism. But you just don't pop out of the womb optimistic. You have to train it. So that's part. So those are three pieces of the tapestry, philosophy, vision, optimism. And then we want to help people be very clear about what's under their control 100% of the time. 
What do they have 100% capacity con- control? And that stitches right back to the Stoics, to your mention to Ryan Holiday's interest. And the Stoics' basic belief was that there's so much in this world that's going on. Why spend any ounce of your volitional control and energy on things that you don't have ultimate control over? You're just leaking energy if you're trying to get people to like you, if you're trying to look for approval, if you're trying to leverage the way that you think and act for others' um, social or financial approvals. So ultimately, the short answer is, you know, all there's only two basic things that we have 100% control over, which is our actions and our thoughts. And if that's the case, then let's double down, triple down over index on mastering our thoughts so that we can have masterful actions. Because what we know from cognitive behavioral training or cognitive behavioral theory, one of the grounded or one of the grounded theories in the science of psychology is that thoughts precede emotions and body sensations and thoughts, emotions, and body sensations impact performance. And if you want to become more skilled, move up the chain of impact and really work on having the most optimized ways of thinking and thoughts and inner conversations that you can have with yourself. And then that leads into a whole host of mental skills that we can develop. And I know I'm giving you a mouthful, but um, there's a lot to there's a lot to figure out. And uh, I can keep going, but I feel like that's probably enough for now. Uh, actually, I, I really love where you're going. Um, I want to talk about this optimism thing for for just a minute. So, um, I uh, I think I have a bit of a reputation with the people that know me about uh, as being uh, maybe an above average optimistic guy. Okay. And, uh, um, my question is thinking about the difference between just Pollyanna wishful thinking versus optimism. Like, you know, I've got my little quest here to invent my own Richard Branson virgin group. Right. And there's so many opportunities for disappointment. The nature of, you know, the statistics of startups are not, you know, it's hard to be an entrepreneur if you know anything about statistics, right? So, mm-hmm. so um, there's so many opportunities to be overwhelmed or this doesn't work, something I'm counting on. And, and, you know, the nature of being at the beginning of anything is typically when the finances are in the worst position, right? Um, and so these opportunities where, you know, there's real data saying, hey, this isn't working as well, or, or you've, got a, you've got a legitimate struggle at, at this business, for instance, um, there's the, you know, there's the wishful thinking of, you know, just wishing for things to be better. And then it's, it sounds like the kind of optimism you're talking about uh, is a different kind of like mental model to look at the future as opposed to just wishful thinking. Is that accurate? Am I putting words in your mouth? No, you're not. I mean, the science of optimism is pretty clear, right? Is that it's the basic lens that you view the future through. And it's a belief that things work out. So if things basically do work out for you, then stay in it. Now, that doesn't mean in the face of reality that, um, okay, so let me back up, is that oftentimes when I I begin to talk about optimism, you see the cynics and the pessimists in the room go, oh, God, here we go. And because they don't call themselves pessimists, they call themselves realists. (laughs) Yeah, as if an optimist isn't based in reality. Now, naive optimism is really dangerous. Naive optimism is what keeps people in a battered relationship, an abusive relationship, because the belief is my partner's going to change one day and it's all going to work out. 
but you don't ever see them go to AA meetings or NA meetings or um, psychology, uh, a psychotherapist or psychologist to figure out how to change. And they keep doing the same freaking behaviors over and over again. So that's naive optimism. Naive optimism is when you have no customers as a startup, you're pouring into money and you've got a really weak business plan and you're just kind of hoping that you land in the next couple months a whale of a client that's going to keep you afloat for the next 20 years. Like that's bad, bad. It's not based in reality. No, there's no and that's evidence. There's yes. No evidence is saying the probabilities of your plan are based in reality, right? Yeah, that's right. And I'd also say that what the, the most disruptive people in the world do, and that's I've been fortunate enough to spend time with some and to study many, is that they don't they don't go with the flow and the status quo of what others think should happen. They've got their own ideas and then they're ridiculous about investing in a plan and investing in the skills and capabilities to put them in a position to capture that that disruptive idea. So so I don't want to suggest that you all, to always look at the numbers to make um, decisions, but optimism is a basic belief that this idea I have is possible. And now my responsibility is to co-create an environment and co- um, with other people to make that thing happen because no one's in this game alone, right? Even, even individual athletes are, are never in it alone. They have a relationship with their competitors. They have a suite of people that support and challenge them, coaches and nutritionists, psychologists, strength coaches, you know, parents. And so no one's ever in this alone. So it's our responsibility to co-create the right environment to get that thing switched on and then invest in our own capabilities to stay the course and to know when to leave and to say to no. You know, like all of that is really important. And so, um, and it's hard. There's no, there's no formula. There are no seven steps. There are no secrets. It's ridiculous, passion-based, hard work over a a long period of time that helps people or with, and and what helps is when people have really clear ideas about their, their future, the vision or their goals, and then backfilled with all of the mental skills, physical skills, and technical skills to make that thing potentially become a reality. There's, there's no secrets. Yeah. Reverse engineering the necessary skill sets, and then the roadmaps to build those skill sets. Yeah, you know, for sure. And and yes, and there's nobody on the world stage of athletics or um, business that doesn't work hard. We do not talk about working hard. That's that's a given. This idea that you got to hustle and grind, everybody is. (laughs) So we don't talk about that. What we're actually talking about behind the curtain is how to recover better, how to, how to, live more efficiently, how to not waste the internal energy by being irritated easily, by thinking about all the things that could go wrong and obsessing about those things, meaning anxiety. It's perfectly fine to do an analysis of all the threats and perfectly fine to think about and be aware of all of the things that could go wrong, but it's the excessive thinking about those that provides this leak of energy. And on the world stage, people that are exceptional, disruptive, extraordinary at what they do is that they are on a mission to look for a higher signal to noise ratio. So they're looking for the signal. And I haven't met a world-class athlete that either doesn't inherently from their parents or young young coaches, um, or they've been trained by um, a sports psychologist 
on confidence. They understand confidence at a pretty, pretty incredible level. And when I ask most people, like, where does confidence come from? They don't know where it comes from. They say, yeah, it's important, but they don't know where it comes from. And it only comes from one place. And once you understand what that one place is, the whole world begins to change. It does not come from past success. I can't tell you how many athletes I've worked with that have had the national anthem being played on the Olympic stage, gold medal around their neck, and then they go into the next world championship opportunity and they're nervous. Why would that be? Because they've been basing their past success as the foundation for their potential future success. That is a broken model. Because as soon as you get a just a sliver or a hint that something could go wrong and maybe that past success was just lucky, then it spins the entire top on its head and now we're completely off balance. So past success is not the right one. Preparation is not the right foundation. Those are nice to have and maybe even um, necessary but not sufficient. Confidence only comes from one place, which is what you say to yourself. And you and I, we are 100% responsible for what we say to ourselves. The real problem for most people is we're so busy with doing, we're not paying attention to our being. We're not paying attention to how we speak to ourselves. And that's why mindfulness is one of the central pillars for the program that Coach Carol and I um, have created for business leaders and, and managers. And mindfulness is... Um, you know, it's got incredible science right now that's supporting it. And it's been around for 2,500 years as an ancient tradition for well-being and performance. Well, I want to talk about, about this a bunch in uh, part two of the episode. We should, let's cut part one off here. Um, we haven't even talked about the podcast yet, findingmastery.net, but people should definitely check that out. So let's talk about where people should be going to learn more. Uh, compete to create.net, findingmastery.net, check, you know, connect with you on LinkedIn, and any place else that people should be going to check? Yeah. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. Twitter is at Michael Gervais and that's G-E-R-V-A-I-S. And then Instagram is at Finding Mastery. Perfect. Okay. Everybody tune back in for part two. We're going to keep, uh, we're going to keep going with this conversation, but uh, I got to tell you, I think we're going to need to have you on for more episodes than just today's interview. Okay. Thanks everybody for listening. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or four hundred million dollars. Anyways, he uh, he started a new company called BlipBillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run, and it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for two ninety nine subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. 
All right, now, listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.